Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 13th, 2014, and it is a Wednesday. And uh, we did miss yesterday's show. I have a short week this week. I've just got a lot going on, and I've been trying to put out some videos for you guys I've also been trying to do some video for uh, Perma Ethos PDC, some adjunctive videos there, and I did get those out this week as well. I've got another great video coming out for you guys today. It's it's doing whatever the YouTube editor does right now. Uh, it seems to take forever once you piece together videos that have been uploaded individually. Probably should have used Sony Vegas. It would have been easier. It was a cool video of what the mornings are like here at TSP. It's called Mornings with the Birds, and... Uh, contrast my life today with my life of, let's say, seven years ago. Anyway, before uh, we get into today's show, which is going to be a show kind of for new people, I think a lot of you guys that are old-timers will like this show, but I think this is going to be a great show for you to share with people. And when you're sharing a show with new people and they don't know about all of the history and stuff, if you want to say, hey, jump ahead to whatever number in the timeline it is, go ahead and do that. You know, They may not want to listen to the housekeeping and some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, because, you know, there's some stuff that I want to let you guys know today that's pretty specific to people who have heard the show at least a few weeks. Anyway, before uh, I get into today's show, which again is going to be uh, a really great show for new people, and it's going to be called, why, Well, Why Isn't Everyone a Survivalist? And I think I'll make a pretty good case for you right off the bat where we should all be modern survivalists. But before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day, number one today, survivalgearbags.com. Kelly John does an awesome dude. Runs survivalgearbags.com with his family. He was in the fulfillment industry when he found TSP way, way back in 2008. Became a forum member, put some group buys together, and thought, hey, I can turn this into a business. Um, Time went on, he built enough success in it that one day he said, hey, I want to be a sponsor. And I went, hey, I'd love you to be a sponsor, but I don't have any space. I did have a sponsor turnover. I don't get many of them, but I had one I turned over. And I said, you know what, Kelly, damn the list. If you want to be a sponsor, you've been with this community for so long, step up and you can be a sponsor. And he became a sponsor with us about three and a half years ago. Remains a sponsor with us still today. Great gear, great bags to put in them. Uh, an example of somebody that created a business from nothing here in America. That's what it's all about, guys. If you need some gear or you need some gear bags, check out survivalgearbags.com. Well, let's say you need everything else for your prepping needs. Long-term food storage. Um, long-term, you know, stuff to make your own long-term food storage out of your own foods. Um, tactical to practical, gardens to guns and everything in between. Hey, get over to Safe Castle Royal. Safe Castle's the original survival podcast sponsor. First company that ever sponsored this show. That sponsorship will have its sixth year anniversary in January. I don't know many podcasts that have been around that long, let alone podcast sponsor relationships going six years. It's kind of insane. One of the uh, the greatest supporters of the work we do at TSP and the Member Support Brigade, they do give their discount Buyers Club membership to all MSB members for free. That means at no cost to you. And people buy it every day for $49. That makes the Member Support Brigade membership, if you choose to support my show, a dollar a year. A dollar a year. 
Well, a dollar for the first year. Okay, It's even cheaper now because I'm running a sale. You remember that, guys? I'm not putting this out on the blog, but I am running a sale on the Member Support Brigade. Here is the discount code. It is August T to give you 20% off the Member Support Brigade membership off any membership term, and it applies to renewal. So if you've uh, either expired or want to get an account and haven't done so yet, want to support the show, uh, you can get any membership term monthly, semi-annually, annually, whatever, with 20% off, and it applies to recurring. That's all I'll say about that today. Um, let's go ahead and take care of the year that was the episode 1406. I have for you today a choice between three. Quality control the hard way, the great schism, Pope Innocent returns to Rome, and Italy selling out pizza. You can read the other two if you want to at tspwiki.com in the segment for 1406. I'm going to read to you quality control the hard way. The Hasaitic League is a guild of merchants with strict rules on commerce and quality control. They recently took over the herring trade from Finland due to problems with rotting fish at the bottom of the barrel. We just heard about this recently, and that's where the term bottom of the barrel actually comes from. The league can be quite forceful at times. This year they caught a British fishing vessel violating the league's fishing grounds, so they tied up a crew of 96 men and tossed them overboard to drown. No walking the plank bound and tossed in. The original mandate of the League was to protect German shipping from pirates and improve the business practices of their neighbors. Uh, when business community runs by consistent rule, a business can plan ahead and run smoothly. Even when things go wrong, the rules make it clear what will happen, and, li and like it or not, one knows what the consequences of not following the rules are. Overall, the League will improve commerce, but their methods of enforcement make it difficult to distinguish the League from the pirates they are protecting the community from. Um, this is just another example of as soon as somebody comes to power, whether it's through force or through government authority, they start abusing their power. I mean, I want you to think about it this way, right? So they caught these British guys fishing in their, their fishing grounds, tied them up and threw them over and killed them. Um, let's take out how screwed up it is that they tied them up, threw them over, and killed them, and let's just take it at this way. Who the hell says this is your fishing grounds, dude? Right, so they claimed part of the ocean. This is our part of the ocean. Now you could say, well, this is like international waters today or what have you. Eh. Have you looked at a globe? The, 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 the distance between Britain and Germany on, on a globe across the English Channel in France, northern France? Uh, I don't think that one person gets to say, this is my part of the ocean. But apparently they do, and we have a lot of it still going on today. The more things change, the more they stay the same. All right, with that, let's get into the uh, main part of today's show, and I'm going to pull up real quick just like so today. It would be about seven minutes in, you could tell people, if you want to tell a new person to jump to this part of the show. So today I really wanted to tell you guys about just the basics of modern survivalism, the basics of being a prepper, and why everybody should do it. And I want to start out with a little bit of a story here about how TSP started and when I started this show, what people would say to me. So back in 2008, I started this podcast, and I, cr I coined a phrase, modern survivalism and modern survivalist. At the time, I know that the phrase was not used really by anybody. 
because I went to Google when I decided that I was going to say that I coined this phrase and make sure that I actually did. Today you'll find it everywhere. But if you put quotes around words in Google, so if you search for, quote, the quick brown fox, end quote, you'll pull up listings that only have those words in that order on Google, you know, and you'll find a billion listings for that. So I went, I put modern survival, and there was like, Two pages where it came up where, like, the words really weren't together. They're like the beginning and end of a sentence type thing. Modern survivalist, and there was nothing there. So I coined these phrases, and I thought, I'll build TSP around this concept of modern survivalism. And I'll tell you what that means in just a minute. But what was funny is I had the survival podcast, and I'm teaching people to be a modern survivalist, and I had all these well-meaning people as the... Prepper movement started to become really something people were getting into. And I had all these people say, Jack, and I guess there is a prepper podcast now, right? But there was no, there was no survival podcast. There were no prepper podcasts. There was nobody doing this back in 2008. And in fact, it's part of why I created this show. I, I went to look for content on iTunes and there was like, there was nothing. So I had people saying, Jack, you should call it the prepper podcast or the modern prepper podcast or modern prepping podcast or something. You should, you should use prepper. It's a softer term. It won't turn people off. Well, think about it today, right? It, it, you have doomsday preppers, right? And they've, they've ruined the word doomsday or they've not ruined the word doomsday. They've ruined the word prepper. So it wouldn't matter if I made that change. I stuck with modern survivalist and I'll, I'll tell you why. Now I'll tell you why people were like, advising me to change it, it was because, well, survivalist is like scary guys with guns and tin hat people and new world, world order obsessed conspiracy theorists and, you know, they're going to come and get us and put us in FEMA camps and all that stuff. And I just thought maybe I should use the words that actually meant something. So what I'd like to do with you today before we go forward with becoming a modern survivalist is what does the word modern survivalist mean? What does that phrase mean if we actually look at the root of the words? So modern, this, these are straight dictionary definitions, right? Of or relating to the present or recent times as opposed to the remote past. Okay, Survival, the state or fact of continuing to live or exist, typically in spite of accident, ordeal, or difficult circumstances. Ist, a suffix that means to specialize in. So uh, if you say you are an orthodontist, you specialized in orthodontistry, right, which is like braces and teeth, right? So if you are a podiatrist, you're a doctor that specializes in feet, all right? So of or relating to the present or recent times as opposed to the remote past, the state or fact of continuing to live or exist, typically in spite of an accident or deal or difficult circumstance, And specializing in that. So modern survivalist means one who lives in the present here and now and specializes in creating a life that will allow them to continue to live a good life in spite of accident, ordeal, or difficult circumstances. Now, do you see why I ask why isn't everyone a survivalist? If you were raising a child, isn't that what you would want from them? Would you not want to raise a young adult... That, continue, that can continue to thrive in spite of an accident, ordeal, or difficult circumstance? Or would you say, no, I don't want that. I want my kid, when he grows up to be a young man, like if he has a difficult circumstance, I just want him to like, fall down and just quit. Or would you want him to have the ability to persevere? And not just persevere like, okay, my whole life's destroyed now and I'm going to get back on my feet, but to set up his life so that 
If you do get knocked down, you kind of get knocked down and just get back up, not you're knocked out. Or, you know, really, if that's what you'd want for your kids, because this is how I try to make people understand doing things for themselves. People always say, well, I do this for my kids and I do that for them. Well, will you do it for yourself? And do you, can you expect that your children will grow up to be the type of man or woman you'd like them to be if you aren't that man or woman? A little side note before I get into the outline I have for today. I recently saw a very interesting post on Facebook. And it was from somebody that said, Would you want your daughter to date a man like you? Would you want your daughter to date a man like you? And there were some people like, hell no, and whatever, and a few people said yes. And I said, if I had a daughter, and I don't, I just have a son, but if I had a daughter, absolutely. Absolutely. And what I said in my response to this was, dads, take your daughters on fake dates, training dates, if you want to call them that. Take your daughter out to have a lunch and talk to her like an equal. Speak to her like a young adult as she gets older. Open a door for her. Be respectful to her. Talk to her about the fact that you're her father and you'll always love her. And then when she goes out and finds a man to spend her life with, she needs to find somebody far different in that aspect than you. Don't look for a father. Look for a husband. Look for a relationship. But if the person that you find won't treat you with the respect that I've demonstrated to you here, if they don't show you the behavior that I've modeled for you, they are not worth your time. And I think you'd have a lot more stable marriages, stable families, and women requiring men to provide them respect if fathers would do that with their daughters. It might sound funny to say, take your daughter on dates, but I'm telling you, take your daughter on dates. Model the behavior, right? Don't just be the guy that you want you know, to be similar to the person that you'll one day have as a son-in-law. Model the behavior. And if you want your children to be able to get up off their ass if they're knocked down, not only should you, just through toughness and fortitude, get up off your ass if you're knocked down, you should set your life up so it's easier to do that. That's what modern survivalism is all about. It's, it's really just common sense. It, and... I, I find it ironic when I talk to people and they say, oh, you're, you're one of those preppers. Do you, do you have a bunker? And I'm like, no. They're like, oh, well, do you have guns? Oh, yeah. But I'm also a hunter and, you know, I mean, lots of people have guns that aren't preppers. Like, oh, well, how much food do you have? Not enough. And they're all obsessed and they're all kind of weirded out, right? And I'll usually say something like, Dude, what kind of car do you drive? And they'll be like, well, I have this car, this new car, and I bought it. And all. Do you have insurance on it? Well, yeah, you have to. If you didn't have to, would you have insurance on your car? Well, yeah. Well, why? Well, if you get a wreck, you know, you want something to pay for it. Oh, so you're a prepper. Oh, no, that's not what that means. I'm like, well, it kind of does. You have a potential disaster, car wreck, and I'm sure your insurance covers things like injury or bodily harm to other people if you get sued and things like that. So you've preempted a potential emergency with prior planning, this makes you prepared for that, therefore you're a prepper. Well, that's that's not what I'm talking about. Well, you know, and then if you start having a conversation with them, you'll find there's all these places in their life that they've put some sort of assurance or insurance into. But then there's these gaping holes of, of things that are actually very, very important. So, 
you know, you'll say, well, what what happens if one of you, you know one of your family members die? Oh, well, you know, we have life insurance. Great. Well, what happens if you both lose your job for some reason? You're trying to put food on the table. No, there's some unemployment. But when you start doing the math, it's like your whole life's going to fall apart. Well, if you had some food set aside, you know, even just a couple months, and for a couple months you knew that you could just not go to the grocery store or only go, you know, 10% as much as you used to buy, And you could use that 60, 90-day period as a get-by in between so you can get back on your feet. Don't you think that would take the pressure off of you and let you make better decisions about getting a new job? Well, yeah. Then why don't you do it? Well, I don't know. And it's almost like when you start having that conversation, what happens is they actually feel like there's something wrong. There's something wrong with having you know, more than a couple weeks of food in your house. If you have a great big deep pantry full of food, Like you've done something wrong, right? And you'll, you'll talk to them and you, you, you talk to them about basic security of their home. And they might have a burglar alarm or something like that. And you're like, well, do you understand that like if somebody breaks in your house, you're at best six to ten minutes before the police get there? Do you, do you think anything can go wrong in that time? Well, yeah. And then you start talking about a gun. And, and they say, well, I, I heard that... Um, you're more likely to shoot a family member than you are a burglar. And I'm, I'm like, well, you heard that. Does, you know, if, I guess if you're stupid or, you know, you're an idiot or you have no training whatsoever on gun safety and you have no procedures or protocols in place for how you handle yourself, maybe you could shoot somebody like that. But most gun owners, and there's over 50 million of us in America, have never shot a family member. So... Maybe that's not true, and maybe you need a way to defend your home. And not just if maybe you don't want a gun. That's I'm not going to tell you you have to have a gun, but you know what are your procedures if somebody breaks in the house? We'll call the police. Again, six minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. If you live further out, an hour before they get there. So what do you do? And they just have. And it's not so much that there's a right answer, but is there any plan at all? And then at least then you can evaluate the plan and to see, well, does it work or are there weaknesses in it? And as you start going through somebody's life with them, you find all these gaping holes. You know, well, when you start examining their debt load, they have tremendous amounts of debt. And they're like, well, I don't have any problem paying the bills. And, you know, we're, we're, we're fine. Yeah, but it takes one hiccup in your job. Oh, I got a job I'll never lose. Well, nine and a half million people found out that that wasn't true in 2009 during the recession. Nine million people, no job. Many of whom had been in jobs forever, had seniority, union, government, whatever, gone. And many of those people now are back to work, but they're working for 60%, 70% of what they made before they lost their jobs. And many of those people still don't have jobs. And many of those jobs didn't go to India or Pakistan or whatever. They just were eliminated. Companies eliminated jobs. So that's a problem. And you just start going through and you realize that even sometimes they have the resources, but they don't have the plan for how to use the resource. You find out a person, you know, well, yeah, I've thought about somebody breaking in, so I have a gun. Well, where do you keep it? In a gun safe. Okay. Well, it's safe from the children there. Okay. So if I break in your home, and at the time you've realized I've broken in, how long does it take you to go to your gun safe, get your gun out? By the way, is it loaded? Well, I don't keep it loaded. Okay. So where do you keep the ammo? Well, I keep that in the safe next to the gun. Is it loose or in a box? It's in a box. 
Have you ever timed how long it takes you to get from your, your bedroom to your safe, open your safe, and load your weapon? I know that's a bad procedure, guys. I really do know that's a bad procedure. But they don't even know. They have no idea. Well, when I know they're outside, I'll go get it. So what, they're going to ring a bell? Hey, burglar out here. So you just consistently find that the average American has no level of preparedness whatsoever. And it's funny because not so long ago in America, preparedness was a virtue. I want you to think about that. I'm not talking 1800s. I'm not talking 1902. All right? I'm talking 1970-1980 when I was a young child. And I remember spending lots of time with grandparents on both sides of my family. And my family was made up of on one side Italian immigrants and on the other side Ukrainian immigrants and both with enough of a connection still to the old country as they would call it to know Life wasn't always as good as it is today. And on both sides, I had grandparents who had actually lived through and experienced the Great Depression and World War II. And you could see a basic bent towards some level of let's not have our butts hanging out totally exposed on, on both sides. And I would say on the Ukrainian side, on my father's side, it was more obvious. My grandmother's side... On my, or my, my mother's side of the family, my grandfather was a 30-year Army veteran, retired as a chief warrant officer, um, and went into private security after that for a long time. And had lived a much more modern lifestyle in, in the, you know, the years around me being born and, and knowing him. And he and she lived in a more typical new home. And what have you. But there was still a little garden in the backyard. Um, even though they lived in Florida uh, for most of the time that I knew them. You know, one of the first things my grandfather on that side bought was a chainsaw. And uh, there was tons of woods around that were going to be cleared anyway as they were building these new houses. And he built a huge wood pile. And it, he said, you know, if there's ever a time where that without power in the winter, it does get kind of cold here. At least we have that. So there was, you know, that basic concept. Now, my other side of the family, you know, there was a half-acre garden. Um, there were chores that involved go to the mountain, the blueberries are out right now, and come home with at least six quarts of blueberries. Uh, if you're going to go fishing, that's fine. You better bring some meat home. You want to go hunting after school, that's fine, you know, but if you're not doing your chores and somebody's pulling their weight for you, hopefully you're bringing something back. I know you can't always do it, but think about what you're doing out there And try to bring some meat home for the table. It was that kind of mentality. Um, there was the concept that the end of the gardening season, when the surplus was in, my grandmother would spend a couple weeks canning and jarring things, you know. And when we when we went into fall, into hunting season, and the garden had been kind of put to bed for the year, you'd go down in the basement, and deep shelves were just stacked. And these people were not, you know. 1970s World War III survivalists. I don't think my grandmother or grandfather on that side of the family ever even mentioned any concern whatsoever about that. Honestly, they didn't care. They didn't care. They were both fairly devoutly uh, Catholic and figured God had it under control and didn't care. Didn't pay much attention to the news. 
I like to watch sitcoms and old comedies. My grandfather's favorite shows were things like Hogan's Heroes. And really didn't, you know, now it's kind of one of the first ones I really pondered that. They just didn't really care about those things. We had a generator. We had a lot of things that people do today that they call prepping. But it was because we lived in a place where the electricity was reliable most of the year, but sometimes unreliable, where there were ice storms and snowstorms. We didn't have a lot of money. And every bit of food you could either grow or gather was a, a bit of food you didn't have to buy. And everything you could learn to make for yourself was something that even if you bought the components of, whether it was food or uh, a tool, you paid less for it. And if you knew how to do things, you could save lots of money. And when you don't have lots of money, saving lots of it's really important. It was just the way we lived. And there was nothing unique about my grandparents at all where, where I grew up in my teen years. I, I lived in Florida, and then right as I turned into my teens, I moved to Pennsylvania and lived near those grandparents. Every single family lived the same way. And not just everybody's grandparents. Most people that would have been, you know, when you're a kid, old, so 30 and 40 when you're a kid is old, as I'm in my 40s now and laugh at that, um, lived this way. There was some level of preparedness in life in this little coal town. And I'd love to tell you that it's just that place is that way and it's still that way now. And I've been back in, in you know, around 2003-ish. And it's not. There are still people living that lifestyle, but it's not everybody anymore. And it's fading. And, you know, the older, you know, the people that were 40 then are 60 and 70 now. And the ones that are still really living this way are ostracized a bit, even there. And throughout America, that's, that's happened quicker. So even though my, so the reason I tell all these stories is my grandfather that lived in Florida, on my mom's side, had modernized, if you want to use that word, to the point where he still cared, but it wasn't evident. And that was the rest of America. And these little coal towns and these little areas where, where people lived off the land and they closed school on the first day of deer season. And that's a true story if you've never lived in a place where they do. Um, were more into it, but it was ebbing and fading everywhere. And I'm very lucky that I got to be exposed to that mentality in the coal region in one of the places it probably held on the longest. And then the 80s and the 90s, and all came, and Generation X, Generation Y, and now we have Internet and Natives, and all this technology boomed, and the economy boomed, and, you know, people just let go of it all. And now, because you're not familiar with it, it seems odd. But what I remember was old men sitting in a bar room, because kids went to bars at this time with old men, which was probably a great thing. And listen to old men talk about who put up more pickles or sauerkraut this year. And if somebody had a bad year, there'd be a little bit of ribbing, but it's like, you know what, next time I'm down, I'll bring you, we got way more, I'll bring you some. And everybody would bring a little to the person that had a bad year, and all of a sudden, that person didn't have such a bad year anymore. And that was done because it actually mattered. A bad year was a bad year. It actually meant something. It meant 
you know, I'm not going to starve to death, but we're going to really have to scrape to get through winter into the next spring when when the production comes back in. And boy, I hope I get a couple deer this year because, you know, with the the weak garden season, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing that was going on. And, and now we look at that as odd again. But back then it was a, it was a like they had a little bit of pride, like, hey, look what we did this year. And other people were like, that's awesome. And it can be summed up best in the story that my grandfather told me more, I think, than any other story as a kid. The grasshopper and the ant. And I'm amazed today when I talk to grown adults my age and older and say the grasshopper and the ant, and they look at you cross-eyed like, what are you talking about? I'm like, the grasshopper and the ant. You don't know? No. Oh, didn't Disney do a thing? Yeah, that's not the story. You're like, it's a fable. Oh, what? I don't... Okay, so you need to tell them a story. And when you tell them a story, most people go, oh, I kind of heard of that before. But the grasshopper and the ant, the real story, the short version, the Jack Spirico version of the original goes this way. There's a grasshopper and an ant. And they're out in a field. And the ant toils and works hard all day and sweats. And he's hauling food constantly into the hole in the ground. And the grasshopper, being a grasshopper, is playing and fiddling and farting around and enjoying life and saying, why do you work so hard? And the, and the ant says to the grasshopper, hey, grasshopper, one day it's going to get very cold. And we're putting up food for our family so we have something to eat. And when that happens, we're going to go down into our home. You're going to have nothing, and you're going to freeze to death. And the grasshopper says to the ant, you're crazy. You're nuts. That doomsday's never coming. Look, look, it's beautiful out. So the grasshopper never does anything except take what he needs as he needs it. And then one day the winds start to blow. The leaves start to turn color. And time is growing short. And the ants, now they're humping it. And the, and the grasshopper's like, you guys are crazy. This is the best weather we've ever had. And then one day the dark clouds roll in. The first snows of the season fly. The ants close their door. The grasshopper knocks on the door and says, let me in, help me. Nobody answers the door. And the grasshopper dies. Because he wasn't prepared. Now we've come up with new versions to that story. And please don't send me the one about Jesse Jackson and all the other crap. And Kermit the Frog singing It's Not Easy Being Green. And I, I, I've gotten that so many times since 2008. I, I just don't need it anymore. But we've come up with new versions. You know, the, the ant takes the grasshopper in. And he feeds him. And he puts a little towel over him. And there's a you know, cartoon version of this from even 15, 20 years ago. Or maybe older than that. And then the grasshopper learns his lesson. When you, I know you want to make everything nice for your kids, but this is why we have teacup kids. And you, you're robbing your children of a, a moral lesson in life. Those who fail to prepare when something goes wrong suffer. Oh, I don't want them to know that. Well, it's true. It's true. Well, the government helps. Well, and you still suffer more than if you had been prepared, even when the government does the best that it can. Even when the government does what we would all look at and go, in this instance, that's pretty good response. That's pretty good. Those who are prepared do better in disasters. And to do better in minor or major disasters doesn't matter. Whether it's a job loss or a hurricane, those who are prepared fare better. So to me, this is all about setting up basic redundancies and starting with some really simple steps. This is the part of the show where I'm going to go through some basic things to think about and do to put your life in order. And people that are, if you'd call them advanced 
preppers or serious modern survivalists that have really thought about this and have built as much redundancy in, in their lives as they can will listen to this list and go, boy, there's a lot of stuff missing. And that's on purpose. And I'll tell you why. When a person finally wakes up to the reality that, holy crap, I'm not prepared for anything. And there are things that could go wrong. Uh, there could be another major dip in the, not a global crash where the world is all worthless, but, you know, the recession we just had was pretty bad. Maybe I skated through it, but uh, we could have worse than that. That's not as bad as it could get. Or they look at, around at, at diseases and illnesses and think there could, you know, there could be a pandemic. Uh, it could happen. And what would they do? And something kind of jars them awake. You know, what would we do if we lost our job? How, how deep in debt are we? What, That alone is overwhelming. So if you start out with, well, you know what you need to do is get a year's supply of long-term storage foods. At least you have that, and that's taken care of. And you need to put in a full-on homestead in your backyard and make sure you're producing half your own food at least. Get some chickens and some rabbits and some bees. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do and we slowly phase into our lives, if you throw all that at a person, first of all, a person that goes, I don't want to ever have chickens. All of a sudden things like, well, if I don't have chickens, I'm not one of these people. I don't want to be one of these people because I don't want chickens. You don't have to have chickens. Not everybody can, not everybody wants to, and not everybody should. Right? So when we start with like this laundry list of everything you can do, rather than the, the, the few simple things you should do, we overwhelm the people who are already overwhelmed, and they just go, the hell? I don't want to think about this anymore. I want to go back to the red pill, and, and I want to go back in the Matrix, and leave me alone. And unlike the, 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 the story of the Matrix, if you haven't fully awakened to what's going on yet and what life's about yet, you can go back in, and they will. Once, and I, I believe once you're fully awakened, I believe once you realize how lied to you are by society, that everything's perfectly fine and okay and just do what you're told and everything will be okay. Uh, once you realize that, that government... And corporations see you as a cow to be milked and eventually thrown out in the pasture and left to die. When you realize that you are nothing but a, a, a cog in a machine and you choose to stop being that and you choose to control your own life. I think once you go there, that's it. You can't go back in the matrix and you don't want to. You, you, you cannot go back to blissful ignorance. But... In the beginning of that awakening, and it is an awakening, and don't let that scare you if you're a new person. It is an awakening. And, and much of what you may believe right now is not true. Now, I'm not talking about conspiracy theories. I'm not talking about what they really did to JFK. I'm not talking about that. Or I'm not talking about chemtrails or other nonsense. I'm talking about the way you live your life and a belief in things that are just not true. Like, debt is just the American way of life, and if you're not in debt, you don't matter. Right? Just save 10% for your retirement mutual funds and everything will be super when you're 69. Right? When you realize that these things are not true, and even if they're true for some people, they're not true for the vast majority of Americans, and that people are losing the American dream on a daily basis. You know, George Carlin said they call it the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. Um, But I think there still is an American dream. It's just we're losing sight of what it is. We've been told it's something else, so we chase that. And we're like an amusement for the people in control. 
Just like the greyhound chasing the rabbit at the racetrack. Look at him go. <laughs> Look at him. He thinks he's going to get a retirement. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. He's on that treadmill generating energy for us, right? That's, that's how these guys feel about you. That's, that's, that's where you're at in America today. And once you wake up to that, it's hard to go back to sleep. Part of that waking up is realizing, first of all, that you can take care of yourself. You, you have to get there first. Because a lot of the reasons that Americans, and, and, and I know this audience is international. I have people all over the world listening. So when I speak to the American audience, understand I really mean everybody, anybody out there, the modern societies of today, the reason people cling to things, the reasons people fear, well, what would happen if, you know? What if the government wasn't here to, I don't know, measure how long swimsuits are so that women aren't exposing too much knee? Yeah, they really did that back in yeah early days. And it's, there's a picture of it somewhere. Um, the reason people fear being responsible for themselves is they don't realize that they can be anymore, and they feel exposed, and they feel they feel threatened, but they don't understand the threats. They feel like they're not prepared, but they don't understand that's what it is. So there's this enveloping sense that society's normalcy and government's protection. And just the fact that my house looks nice and it's surrounded by other houses that looks nice is this bubble that will protect me and nothing bad will ever happen here to me. And some of it's just major self-defense so that we can function in society. In other words, if you said to somebody, you know, one in four people are going to get cancer. Or, uh, yeah, they believe you completely. Yeah, I've seen enough people get cancer to know it's possible. Which means there's a 25% chance it could be you. Oh no, I, I live right and whatever. And See, you know that does that that defies logic. So it's a defense mechanism. So it's important first that we're able to pull back that false defense mechanism so that we can actually put things in place that are actual defense mechanisms. So here's the things I think a person can do to begin to do that. And I don't think anything I'm going to tell anybody today is anything that anybody can make a case against being anything other than common sense, but America's lost its common sense, and most Americans don't do any of this today. And I can point to, over the last six years that I've been doing this show, I can point to hundreds of examples of where it would have been good for people to have done these things. And not just in Haiti or Africa, but right here in America. And not just in the middle of Hurricane Sandy, but in basic little minor disasters that have happened over and over and over again that barely, barely qualified for the third page of a local newspaper. So these are things that really happen and things we could do. The first one, and I think this is one that's great if you're the spouse and your spouse is like, I don't want to talk about this, right? Because it's impossible for anybody to say it's not a good idea. And that's build a blackout kit. Now, I don't mean a bug-out kit. We'll talk about that in a second. Because bug-out kits sound scary. Right? That's, that's when, the not, when the Illuminati come, we're going to run away in the woods. That doesn't, that doesn't work. We don't do that. Right? There's a place for that kit, too, but we'll talk about that next. But first, I mean a blackout kit. I mean, you're sitting at home in your house. You're watching the football game, a Monday night football. It's gotten dark outside. Kids are playing with their video games or whatever in the other room. Uh, mom's ringing you a beer. You know, and, and you're going to sit down and mom and dad are going to sit there and watch Monday Night Football because you're lucky and you're married to a lady that likes football. Kids are happy. Everything's good. A little bit cold outside, late in the fall. House is going to get cold. Power goes off. What do you do? I got a flashlight. 
Where is it? Do you know? Wouldn't it be great if all the things you needed for a blackout were in one place? Now, see, this is where people are going to say, well, I got, a, I got a Stephen Harris battery backup system. You can just Google that, and you'll find, you go right, you'll end up right back here at the Survival Podcast for shows about how to build one. But, see, we're not going to go there yet. That's a great next step. Let's just start out with what we can do. First of all, half or more of the things that you need probably are already in your home, spread out through drawers and underneath couches and wherever. What if we just got ourselves a bin or a soft tote or something like that, or a bag, and in that bag we put a whole handful of flashlights. They go in there. Okay, We have some flashlights. We put some candles, some things to light them with, some extra batteries. Let's say we get ourselves at least a charger for some small batteries that we'll plug into our car. And then people will go, get, get the inverter too. Yeah, let's just start real simple. Okay? If we have a fireplace, let's make sure that we have some wood and fire starting stuff available somewhere else. But maybe we have, again, matches and things like that in our blackout kit. And... Maybe we have, as we build that a little bit bigger, right next to it, up on a shelf somewhere where we keep this stuff. We have some big, heavy blankets and stuff like that so that we have, you know, stuff for, you know, if it's cold in winter, so at least we can bundle up. And then just sit and think, well, what are all the things I would need in my climate, in my home, in my situation, if the power was out for more than a day? And you'll start realizing, well, in the summer, it's really hot. So it'd be great if I had a fan at least. How am I going to run the fan? And then this leads to the things that are sl just slightly more advanced. You can go out and buy yourself a little 800-watt inverter for your car. And that can do things like run your refrigerator for a couple hours at a time and keep your stuff good in your refrigerator for days. You can run some fans, small televisions, things like that. Just extension cords run out to your car, idle the car. To keep, you know, the battery topped off. But that's, that's kind of the next stage. I'm saying just for, for the love of God, take all the stuff that you would use in a blackout, put it in one place, and then put something in place so you can get there. So you can get these little power failure lights. They plug into a wall outlet and they have a battery in them and they keep the battery charged from the electrical outlet. And when it gets dark, they automatically turn on like a night light if there's no power. So as soon as you, if you pull it out of the wall, it just turns the light on. So just a few of these leading to where you keep all your stuff for your blackout. Now you're sitting at home, you're watching football, power goes out. Okay. Lights come on. I can see where I'm going. Let's get everything set up for, for, you know, pretend camping in the living room. And if you can charge up some batteries and things like that, so much the better. Now, I would say that like the next step is a basic battery backup system, a small generator, inverter for the vehicle. All right? But today, let's just get the blackout kit together. Next thing, a 72-hour kit. This is what some people in the know, right, the survival world call the bug-out kit. It's for bugging out to the wilderness. No, you don't bug out to the wilderness. It, I call it a 72-hour kit because there's too much jargon. There's too much, just to be blunt, and some of you won't like this word, but I'm direct and I'm to the point. There's too much bullshit in the prepper world today. There's just too much bullshit. Well, I have a get-home bag. I have a bug-out bag. Well, they should really be the same. What you have is a 72-hour kit, and it might support you at home. It might support you on the way home. 
it might support you away from home. All right? I gotta get out of Dodge Bag. Shut up. Just shut Quit making up an acronyms. Quit making crap up so that you can justify buying another gimmick somewhere to your wife or whatever. A 72-hour kit is where to start. And it's basically just the things that you would need to relatively be comfortable for a 72-hour period without systems of support. So it could be a situation like you're driving your car down the road, you're in the middle of nowhere, deer pops out, car goes off the road, car's stuck in a ditch, out of cell phone range, go up on the road, look for traffic, no one's there, and you're stuck for overnight. Right? That could be a you know inconvenient or complete disaster. Right? Depending on whether you're prepared for it or not. It could be that you're sitting at home one day and Hi, sir. I'm sorry. Uh, you need to get you and your family. You guys have about uh, 30 minutes. We have a mandatory evacuation because we have a chemical spill and we feel your neighborhood is threatened by it. This is a mandatory evacuation. You need to leave now. That'll never happen. It happens. There's no chemical plants. Well, there's trucks with chemicals on them that drive down the road all the time. It happens. I've seen it. Right? It, it could be, you know, there's a fire and your house is burned down, and your bags probably don't belong in your house, therefore at least you have some level of support for a few days while you handle things like insurance claims uh, to get some money, to get yourself into a hotel with the insurance company and things like that. It can be anything. It's not necessarily, hey, Russian and Cuban paratroopers are falling out of the sky, and we need to go fight a war in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. Just, I mean, that's not what this stuff's about, guys. So I have whole shows on bug-out bags, giant lists for stuff to go into bug-out bags. But the basics are simply clothing, food, water, uh, communications, extra energy. Uh, when I say that, I mean like batteries and things like that. Radios, uh, extra socks, just the stuff that you... Just think about, if I could pick this bag up and go stay at somebody's house... All right, and they gave me this empty room, and there was nothing in there at all. Period. There was just a floor, four walls, and a roof, and all I had was this bag, and I had to be there for three days. Could I do that? And then I would say you have a very good phase one bug out bag. If you could say I could just stay, you know, stay there, yeah, I could be okay. Fine. If You could do the same thing if somebody said, here's a little patch in my backyard. And, by the way, the room, the, there's no electricity at this house. It's just a room, right? So that's like your phase one. That's that's pretty good. You're in pretty good shape. You're, you're in a shelter somewhere for whatever reason. You could live okay for three days. That's a pretty good bag. If you could do it in a backyard, I'd say you've reached phase two of, uh, of doing well with a bug out bag. If you could do it in the backyard during extreme cold or heat, then you've you've kind of optimized it, right? And that may mean you need to change some things around. But you don't need to get to, to this phase three level of bug out bag or 72 hour kit bag preparedness right now. Just try to build the bag so that if somebody gave you the room and it had an electrical outlet, fine. You put an inverter in your car, you have an electrical outlet, right? But there's one electrical outlet in the room. You can plug one device into at a time. If you could stay in there for three days with that bag, 
and be relatively comfortable, then you're in pretty good shape for a start. And that's something everybody can do, and you probably have. This is the thing. The blackout kit and 72-hour kit now that I've, I've talked to you about, you don't need to go to you know Cabela's or Cheaper Than Dirt or Bass Pro Shops or Tactical Supply or whatever and buy a $150, you know, um, you know, combat bag and combat medic kit and all this other stuff to get that kit put together. You could probably find an old bag, a duffel bag, a backpack, something somewhere for every member of the family. In most homes, there's old stuff laying around to do this, a Rubbermaid tote with wheels on it or whatever it is, and you can put this together with old clothes and extra stuff and maybe one or two things to buy. The food, though, is something you may want to invest in, and it doesn't have to be you know, trail food. It doesn't have to be mountain house or, or, or freeze-dried. You know, beef jerky keeps damn near forever. Nuts. Those are two great energy sources. Uh, but enough food that, that, that at least one person will be supported by the bag for three days if everybody has a bag. you got little ones, you need to make sure you support them with it on your own. But little ones can have little bug-out bags. right? They can't take all the stuff they need, but they can take some of it so that you can handle everybody. So those are the two most basic things that I think people can do. The next one, and this can go with your bug out bag or your, your 72 hour kit or your get home bag or your get out of dodge bag or whatever stupid name you're going to come up with for next, but for, with your 72 hour kit. But I think these belong in vehicles. And this is a documentation package. And this needs to be printed out even if you have a copy of it, which is not a bad idea on a thumb drive or something like that. And I have a whole podcast. Uh, that I'll put a link to in the show notes today on documentation. And a master sergeant, sergeant from the Marine Corps who started listening to my show uh, way back in the beginning, who is one of the most switched-on preparedness people that I know, listened to that show and said that is the best thing he's ever heard on how to make sure that you've got all your bases covered. So I'm going to recommend you listen to that. But I'm going to give you the basics of what we're talking about today. This documentation package should have contact information and every form of contact for every contact that you can give emails, phone numbers. If somebody still has a pager, I don't care what, Google voice numbers, every way, physical address that that person can possibly be reached. Anybody that you might want to reach ever should be on a list in that documentation package. Information about your financial institution, your bank accounts, your life insurance, all that stuff in there, you can encode it very, very simply. Very simply. If you want to put an account number for a bank in documentation, here's what you do. Put a one in front of it, add a zero to the end of it. It looks like a phone number. Change every number by one positive or one negative and remember what you've done. It looks like a phone number to anybody else, even if they take the one and the zero off of it, it's not going to work. They still need a lot of other information, but you can you can have that access to information really, really quickly. Again, I go into more detail on this in my podcast about documentation. It should have, if you are ever told or for ever, any reason you ever decide, I've got to get out of my town now, and my family has to go too. Three different places you would go, even if they would be very temporary, until you figure out what to do next. And they should be in three different directions. They can be relatives, family, friends. They can be... Holiday ends for all I care. But three different late places you would go and go on just Google Maps and plot out three different routes to each one. So you've got nine routes to three locations. 
This is so when the road you thought you were going to take is crowded or blocked or washed away or blown up or whatever, you have another way to get there. And so that when location A is not accessible, you can go to B. And when B is not available, you can go to C. These are redundancies. And along each route, you should have rally points. These are points where you'd meet up with somebody else. So three routes, three rally points per route. right? And that simply allows you to do this. You have to leave, mom's at work, dad's at work, kid's close to mom, mom picks up kid, dad doesn't go home, dad goes to rally point A on route A, and so does mom, and they meet up there. And you think that's not necessary. And I hope it never is necessary for you. But the one time it is, it's free to do. It won't take that long to plan it out. And it'll be so valuable. And I want you to think about, if you make this part of your life now, even if you don't have kids that are this age yet, the day that your 17-year-old daughter is freaking out because a mandatory evacuation has been ordered. She's now driving a vehicle. She's wherever she is, and you can't get to her, but she can get to where you're going. This is in her car, and she's on the phone with you freaking out, and you say, listen, you see where you're at? Turn to this and make all of all copies should be the exact same, same number of pages, etc. Turn to page seven. You see that map? Okay, where are you at on? Okay, you're there. You see this place is marked AA. Yep, that's where Daddy's going to go. That's where you're going to go. This is how you're going to get there. You drive there, and I'm going to meet you there. Imagine the panic that takes away because you took the time to plan for something that simple. I also advise on that strategy that you guys keep something in your vehicle you consider disposable and unlikely to be scavenged or taken by somebody else, but yet noticeable. I don't know if it's for you. It's a, One thing could be a water bottle uh, that you uh, fill with a little bit of red paint. Put the cap on it, shake it up so it's, it's red on the inside. Um, we use a, a specifically modified Pringles can for ours. And all that would be is if you get to your rally point, And you can't get through on cell phone or whatever other com communications that you have available to you at the time. And some officials come by and say, you cannot stay here. You have to move on. You leave that at the rally point so that when your partner gets there and they see that object, they know you've gone to the next rally point. You've already set that up as, as, a, as a protocol. We'll talk about procedures and protocols here in a second. But that type of thinking... So build a documentation kit. This should also have very practical things. If you're going to go northeast, figure out an area where you'd be far enough away from most disasters. Pick a town there. Put the phone numbers, internet addresses, etc. of every hotel in that area. Why? Do survivalists go to hotels? Hell yeah, when it makes sense we do. So let's imagine this. There's been a mandatory evacuation order from your location for whatever reason. Uh, you're heading 100 miles north, and so is everybody else. You've left a little earlier because you paid attention and you were prepared. Therefore, you're already on your way. But how many people do you think are going to try to find a hotel in that situation? Thousands. You've got them all right here. Uh, also, services that you might use after a disaster, for instance, tree services or fence services and things like that, uh, putting those in this documentation package. Why would you do that? Well, a storm comes through the area and blows trees down everywhere, and you have trees on top of your car, on top of your house, etc., and you need them removed. Well, I have a chainsaw. Well, when the tree fell, you broke your arm, it fell through your roof and smashed you in the face, and you're in the hospital, and your wife's trying to deal with this. 
So I just want to make this real for people. Um, but those types of services immediately just get booked out for weeks and months. Now, it's good to be able to do these things yourself. I'm not saying not to. I'm just saying having that for when, you know, you were on a business trip when this happened, and now your wife's at home and doesn't know how to fix it. All right? So that it can be an immediate, well, we're just going to open the book. There it is. Boom, boom. Well, hey, I need to get this taken care of. We'll be there in a week. Well, it's better than three weeks, which is what the next guy's going to hear. Five minutes later as they get just that jammed up. That's just how things are. Um, things like your your cable service, your electrical service, all the numbers, your account numbers for that, so that when the power's out and you need to call the electric company to tell them because you're not sure that the whole town's out, it's just you maybe, um, and all the information that you need to get in touch with them is on a computer because you get electronic billing and now you can't find it. All right, so those types of things. And again, listen to the episode on the documentation package if you want to know more. But what I want to talk about before we move on and I've been kind of tap dancing on it here, so why I'll put it here in my notes, is protocol and procedures, and the difference between the two. Um, protocol is something that we, we have in place for daily occurrences, daily events, on, ongoing all the time. A procedure is something that we have defined for when an acute event occurs. So let's use a very simple... Um, not emergency, but inconvenience to describe this. It's a flat tire. So we have a protocol in place so that we are prepared if a tire goes flat. This would be things like an air compressor, a plug kit, uh, make sure, making sure a certain uh, number of times a year at least that our spare tire is good, has air in it, making sure we have jacks, making sure we have all the tools that we need to address a tire going flat, and maybe our additional protocol is, well, you know, a tire can, be, two tires can go flat from flat iron dropped off a truck, and you're not fixing that with a spare or a plug. So we also have maybe a triple A card or what have you. So it's all the things we have that we keep consistently that way is a protocol, right? Very simple way to live our lives. So we're going to have a protocol that we neither of us leaves the home without a phone on us. We always have a method of communication if we leave our home. Period. End of story. You do not leave without a method of communication. In case you need to get a hold of somebody or somebody needs to get a hold of you. That's a protocol. Back to the tire, though. Procedure is, I'm driving down the road, I get a flat. So procedure would be, what do I do when I get a flat? If I'm on the highway and cars are zipping by and the tire's kind of low and I can tell but it's not bump, bump, bump on the rim, my procedure might be to get the hell off the highway before I do anything about it. If I come out in a parking lot and it's all the way flat down to the rim, then my procedure might be I have to initiate repairs right there. But I also have to have a procedure in place for what if I cannot move the vehicle And it's unsafe in this instance for me to repair the vehicle. Or impractical or impossible. Unsafe, impractical, or impossible. So again, if, if a truck drops a piece of angle iron and you drive over it on the interstate, psh, both tires, front, all four, psh, flat on the street. Now you're both in a dangerous situation. You might be able to move the vehicle and you might as well at least to the shoulder, maybe, depending on are you in the center lane of a six lane highway? It might not even be, who knows? So now I have to have a procedure in place, like calling AAA, letting somebody know that to help me, what have you. I've got to deal with this, right? So that's so a protocol 
is when I go to bed, I make sure that I have quick access to a weapon and tactical light in case something goes wrong like somebody breaking in. A procedure is how I make sure that I don't meet the fake statistic that the gun grabbers have made up where you're more likely to shoot your family member. So the procedure is what do I do when I hear this sound outside? And I'm not going to go into too many more of these. I just want to get you thinking that way. Because I don't tell people exactly how to set up preparedness in their homes. I don't do it. Or in their lives. I don't do it. I tell them all the things you can do. And I say, you pick and choose from this and build your own preparedness plan. You design your plan for your life. Because I know then you'll do it and you'll stick to it. And if I tell you what to do and I say, you know, if you can produce eggs for next to nothing that are ten times better than what you can get from the store, so go out and get some chickens and you don't want chickens, you'll quit right there. I don't want to do this. Well, you shouldn't do that part. But too many people in this space are adamant you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this and it just doesn't work. So by empowering you with the, the, the information I just gave you is self-evident information, but most Americans don't know that it's true. Procedure and protocol differential. And they don't know how it applies to their lives. You now know. I've actually just given you one of the greatest preparedness assets you could ever have if you've never heard me talk about it before. Right now. Now you have it. You don't have to pay for it. It's yours. And if you start going through your life and say, I want to develop a system of protocols and procedures to deal with things that go wrong in my life. A protocol to ensure my employment is to make sure that I keep my uh, references in, in contact with references. I continue to develop my skill set. I remain part of maybe some trade organizations. I keep an updated resume and an updated LinkedIn profile at all times. That's my protocol. So that's to stay marketable. I do these things. Procedure. I think I'm going to lose my job. I have one set of procedures. I just lost my job. I have another set of procedures. And in, in both instances, the first step in those procedures, just a little life counseling here, should probably be have a beer and relax. Take a walk in the woods. Think about your future and all the opportunities that are out there instead of panicking. And if you have protocols and procedures in place, you can do that. Because you're like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I can't tell you how many times I've gotten calls from people in my life freaked out because they lost their job. Totally freaked out. And you have to go, dude, you're not going to prison. Shut up. Quit whining like a child and let's just figure this out. You know? And most of them had something in place. They wasn't like they're going to be out of their house next week. You know, my, well, the one buddy of mine was like, I can only pay my mortgage for 90 days. I'm like, that's plenty of time to find a job in your, your sector. Quit being a baby. But if you have protocols and procedures in place for this, not only can you not be a baby about it and see the opportunity, but you can immediately enact a plan. You know, a protocol is we have smoke detectors. A procedure is what do I do when they go off, right? Now, I don't want you to think about how many bases we're covering here just by defining protocols and procedures. This is the most powerful piece of preparedness advice you will ever get from anyone. Examine your life, define protocols for daily living so that you are prepared in case something goes wrong, and then develop a corresponding set of procedures for what to do if something goes wrong. And guess what? I just gave you the most advanced disaster planning that is done by every NGO and government agency out there. They have all these, all these mountains and, and reefs of paper and this and that and these classes and that. But when it comes down to it, 
when you put in a great big building and you're going to have a bunch of people officing in there and you have to figure out what to do for fire suppression, there's a whole set of protocols for how you install fire suppression equipment, fire alarms, fire retardant equipment, you know, fire prevention, and then there's a whole list of procedures. Well, when they go off, how do we get these people the hell out of here? It's, it's simple. In, in, in California, where they have earthquakes, they have a whole set of protocols that try to keep buildings from falling down on, on people, and then they have a whole set of procedures when an earthquake comes that exceeds the protocol and things are wrong, how do we respond? Those are the procedures. You just do this in your own life. If it's important enough for the people you think that care about you that don't to do for themselves, it's important enough for you to do for yourself. And it can be done, that one thing can be done in any part of your life. And those of you that are long-term listeners but never heard me discuss this one component before, this was just the whole show, even no matter how advanced your preparedness is. Because if you start looking at your life that way, well, how do I irrigate my garden? What happens if the pump doesn't work? So as a protocol, I make sure I take care of the pump, right? If I'm using a tractor on a farm, the tractor does all these functions, so I have protocols. I have extra parts on hand. I know my maintenance schedules. I stick to it, etc. The tractor just rolled down the hill and is not going to function. What is my procedure now? You name it, and I'll back it up with a protocol and procedure. I don't care what it is. If it goes wrong, you can have a protocol to mitigate the chance that it will occur and a procedure for how to deal with it once it does. You can do it. We got a cancer diagnosis. Protocol, eat right, take care of ourselves, all that stuff. Procedure. Who would you contact? And I think that's very situational. But you can still have basic procedures in place. And you can actually develop procedures as necessary sometimes. And that's the other thing you have to think about. So you can't have protocols and procedures in place for everything. You can evaluate things that way. There's only so much you can do. At, at some point, you have to like live your life and do stuff. right? But if you have that protocol mentality, you start seeing, well, we need to make sure we don't do that anymore. And then when something goes wrong... Even if you've not developed a procedure for it, assuming your hair's not on fire or you're not being consumed by a, by a, uh, a griffin or something like that, um, and you have a second to think, something's gone wrong, instead of panic, instead of reactionary mentality, you're able to sit, sit for a second. What has happened? How do I deal with it? What tools do I have? survivalism, folks. That's survivalism. No, it's not. It, you want me to prove it? Wilderness Survival Training 101. You're lost in the woods. What is the first thing you're supposed to do when you realize you're lost? Stop. Stop. Stop moving before you get more lost than you already are. Sit down, take in your situation. Assess the situation. Ask yourself what tools you have and then develop a plan either to be located or to get home. That's Wilderness Survival 101. Protocol, I'm not going to do stupid things so I don't get lost. I'm going to have a map, I'm going to have a compass, I'm going to stay on the main trails, you know, what have you. I'm going to have food and extra shelter and energy in case I do. I am now lost, now I initiate a procedure. This is survivalism. This is what, why isn't everybody a survivalist? That's why today's show is called that. Why wouldn't you set up your life based on There's certain things I do to avoid catastrophe, and there's certain procedures that I take if one occurs. 
And again, the mentality of that. So now something's gone wrong. You don't have a procedure for this one thing. But again, you're not being consumed by a griffin. Your hair's not on fire. The New World Order isn't shoving you into an oven. You're not going to die this second if you don't respond. And you have the mentality, and you've been doing this your whole life. You can develop a plan. And you can develop a procedure on the fly. And you can also develop protocols on the fly. You have a bunch of kids over to your house for your, your kid's first birthday, and you never really realize something's dangerous because your kid's not stupid and doesn't do a certain thing, and you realize the kids are doing something stupid, and one of them's going to crack their skull, so you immediately develop a protocol for what to do to prevent them from cracking their skull. And if one does crack their skull, you develop a procedure for how to deal with it. It's called being an adult, really. That's, that's what it should be called. Anyway, some other things I think we should be doing, food storage. Okay, don't go panic and buy a pallet of MREs, especially ones you've never tried before. I'm not saying not to put long-term storage food away. I think it's a great idea. We do it. I'm saying don't do it first. The first thing you need to do is just get a couple pieces of paper or an old notebook or something and throw it on your counter. Just throw it on the counter somewhere in your kitchen, kitchen counter, because this is where I assume you tend to prepare your food and, and eat. And every time you eat something, write it down in the book. Two things will happen. One, you'll lose weight because you'll realize all the garbage you'll eating, eating, you'll stop eating it. And two, you'll make a list of the things that you actually eat all the time. Those are the things to stock up on. Wow, that's crazy. No, it's common sense. Like, So if you need to be using surplus food, you should be using the food your family already eats. I hate Kraft macaroni and cheese. I think it's the most awful thing in the world. I don't think you should eat it. I think it's bad for you. I think it's basically a poison. But if you're eating it, you're eating it. It's none of my freaking business. And if you eat it every week and your family eats it every week, the one thing I will say for it is you put it in a box, you stick it on the shelf, and a year later it's the same nasty crap, but it's just as good as it was the day you put it up there. So that goes on the list. We call this copy canning. So if you buy a can of, let's say, canned chili of a certain brand, And you like it, and you use it. But you only use maybe a can every week or two. We'll buy two cans. Just this week, buy two cans instead of one. Put it on the shelf. When you make your grocery list, if you've used one can, buy two cans again. Put it on the shelf. Over about six months, you'll find that of the staple foods that you use all the time, you will, in a six-month period, with very little additional spending, because it's so spread out and cost-averaged out, You'll develop 30 to 60 days of your staples. That's not 30, 60 days of food, but 30 to 60 days of the staple foods that you might be adding fresh vegetables and things like that to. And then you can just extend that. And then when you get up to about 60 days of, I could eat for 60 days. Maybe I'm not overjoyed with myself, but I could eat for 60 days. Then you got to look at some of the like the, the, the foods that are specially prepared for long-term storage, or you got to start becoming a producer. So this is where you take... You go down to the farmer's market and the guy's got like green beans for 40 cents a pound because it's the end of the season. And you're like, how much you got there? And he's like 10 pounds. You go, here's four bucks. And you leave with it. You take it all. You put it in the dehydrator and then you put it in a, can, uh, a jar and vacuum seal the jar right? and put those away. And you use as much as you can fresh, but you put that away. That's You got to start thinking that way. Learning to make jerkies and biltongs on your own or buying stuff like that or freeze-dried foods and what have you. But you don't start there. You just start with a notebook, make a list, and build out the list. Simple. And you'll be healthier for it, trust me. You won't have to go on any special diets. You won't, you'll just look at it and go, I ate that again? 
I'm not buying that crap no more. I'm telling you, it works. Next is water storage. This is the one that's like, this is the stupidest thing that people don't do. I mean, it's, it's completely, utterly preposterous that the average person has no water stored. It is the number one thing that goes wrong for people in our country that's inconvenient. Right now, I think it's Toledo, Ohio. Somewhere in Ohio, there's some kind of infestation in the water from the lakes. And it's some kind of problem with a chemical. It's, it's an algae bloom, but the algae produces a chemical that you can't get rid of with boiling. And if you boil it, since you boil some of the water off, you actually make it more toxic. So you can't boil the water. And they're, they're advising people not to drink it or to bathe with it. How easy would it be to have a couple hundred gallons of water stored? You walk to your sink and you go, and the water comes out. And yes, we get water bills on municipalities, but for all intents, you got to look at water as free. It is the cheapest necessary commodity in your life. So all you need is a container to put water in. That's it. Now there's some other things you can do. There's some advanced strategies. There's ways that you can make sure that the water that's in your water heater is available to you if the power goes and the water goes out. At least that's available. But let's start with the simple things you can do right now. The two best small containers for water storage I have found are two liter soda bottles and the one gallon jugs that things like Arizona iced tea comes in. I don't drink either one. But milk jugs are thin. They've already been in contact with lactic acid, and they have a high failure rate. Water from the store that's in those jugs like that is dirt cheap, and if you want to go buy 20 gallons of it for 16 bucks and put it in the closet, that's fine. Just don't be surprised when one or two or all the bottles get ruptured, and all your water is in your floor, and you're unhappy. These soda bottles and, like the again, heavy plastic jugs like Arizona iced tea comes in, hold water forever, and they're not going to break unless you drop them off like a third-story building on the concrete. They're tough. The soda bottles are designed to deal with pressure from the carbonation and the, the acidic nature of the soda. So what if you don't, like me, don't drink Arizona iced tea or soda? Somebody you know does. Ask them to save you bottles. And we probably have 150 gallons of water in Arizona iced tea bottles that we've built up over a year because my father-in-law drinks two to three gallons of that crap a week. And we just say, hey, save it. It's at the point now we don't want any more, and he's kind of got dementia, and he just, like, it's his thing. Like, I save these bottles for Jack. Fine, we'll take it, you know. And maybe we don't take them all, but we just fill those bottles with water, water that we run through our Berkey so we know it's been filtered. We have a bunch in our pantry. We have a bunch in our garage. And when we run a training event, we use that water to make sure the students have water, and we replenish it, and that's our rotation. You don't need to put bleach in your water. You don't need to jack around with your water. You don't need to treat it to stabilize it. It's water. It doesn't go bad. As long as the container in it is clean. If you want to use bleach for anything, I would say use a weak bleach solution to rinse out your container and then rinse it out with clean water and then fill it with water. Water can't go bad unless there's something in the water to go bad. It can get kind of flat and a little bit off tasting, but it's not going to go bad. So there's no reason not to have water stored. I would say the bare minimum to have stored is 50 gallons. That's a lot. No, it's not. No, it's not. It could sit on the floor of a closet. And if you have four closets, you can put water on the floor, uh, water on the floor of, you know, it's roughly a dozen uh, jugs per closet floor. 
If you're using um, the two-liter soda bottles, they actually fit well in the old milk crates if you can find them. Uh, sometimes when you go to uh, convenience stores and stuff like that and they have those plastic things they set them in, sometimes they're throwing them away. And uh, you can ask, you know, like, do you guys ever rotate these out or whatever for branding or whatever? A lot of times you can get those for free. So those are the ones where you see, like, this huge pallet of soda with these plastic things that make them all stack on top of each other. Sometimes you get that free. Uh, a great place to store some of it is in your freezer. If you have a small freezer, just like a you know a side-by-side -side or a top freezer, a few bottles in there. If you have a chest freezer, the whole bottom, cover it with two-liter soda bottles. And then when your power goes out, they will help keep your food cold. Open your chest freezer, pull all of them out, let the food go to the bottom, put the, the frozen bottles back in on top, close the lid, and put a blanket over it. Your food will, will stay decent for days like that. It will defrost, but it will stay cold for days before you have to really worry about that thing. And then if it all defrosts, you take it out, you cook it, you eat it, eat the ice cream first, like Stephen Harris says, and then when the bottles are melted, you have water. And store other water. But minimum 50 gallons. I would say for a family of four, you should probably try to store 50 gallons per person. It doesn't have to be today. But you, you need to build up that. And that might mean getting some 15-gallon water barrels or something like that to, to get some bulk storage in. But just start out with, ask that friend of yours who's given himself diabetes with Coca-Cola, can you save your, your, your soda bottles for me? And if you don't want to tell them what you're doing, well, kids have projects or something in school or they're getting a penny a piece for them for breast cancer. I don't care. Whatever. Just white lie it and get the damn things. And if you get two or three people doing it, you can have 50 gallons stored in like two weeks for no money. It's amazing when you find a family that drinks that crap how much of it they drink. Especially if they have two or three kids and kids that come over and after school activities and crap like that. I mean, it, there's nothing to it. And those bottles are tough and rugged. And they stack on their side as long as the lid closes well and they're not going to leak. Make sure you check that. I mean, if you stack them like firewood, man, you can stack a bunch of them in a very little footprint. Anyway, so basic water storage. Next thing, you got to start practicing basic situational awareness. It's, it's the most important thing to keep your ass alive and out of trouble and to not do stupid things and to not end up in stupid situations. And I have a simple exercise for situational awareness. Every time you drive somewhere... Try to see one or two things you've never seen on that drive before. Just pick things out. Oh, that guy has a apple tree in his backyard. Oh, look, that fence needs repair right there at the bottom. Just stuff like that. And if you can get a partner, like a, you know, your a spouse or a kid working on this with you, it becomes even cooler. Because what you do is at the end of that trip, you say, what's one thing you saw? And you're like, oh, I saw that too, or I never noticed that before. So you'll no they'll definitely notice it the next time. And you tell them what you saw, one or two things you saw that were different. And if you play that game, the mind starts looking for things. And then what you don't do is sit and get gas uh, at a gas station in a bad neighborhood with your earbuds in while a guy walks up behind you and stubs you in the back with a screwdriver to steal your debit card. Don't think it doesn't happen. So start observing the things around you. And I've done whole shows on situational awareness you can look up. But that's just critical. You start to pay attention beyond you know the length of your arms to what's around you. You'll discover resources that you never knew were there. You'll discover opportunities that you'll never knew were there. And you will avoid problems that you never knew were there. Start looking, like if you see a road that branches off a road you drive on every day, sooner or later you might want to go down that road and see what's down there. 
when you have some time. Just just to know what's there. Like, where does it come out? What's the other side of it? Right, That might be valuable information someday. So situational awareness, acute situational awareness, what's going around you at all times, and then a larger situational awareness of just where are you at in the world. Do you know how many people don't know what weighs north from their house? Flabbergasted by it. And women are worse. I'm sorry if you're pissed off at me, girls, but it's true. Like, if you live in a place where roads aren't straight-line roads, like if you live near interstates where you got east and west, north and south, most people tend to then, they've seen too many signs that say north and south and east and west, they know which way is north. But if you live in like smaller towns and all where the roads are all windy and crap, there's so many people who are like, what way from here is north? Uh, how long you lived here? Whole life. Don't know where north is. That type of situational awareness. I think you definitely need to start thinking about basic financial management and debt elimination. I'm not going to go deep into debt elimination because I could go off on a tear here that would be another hour into this show. But if you're in debt, you are a slave to the people you're in debt to. I, I will not soften that for you. If you're in debt, you're a slave. Break the chain and get out of your slavery now. It is not the American way of life. It is not okay. It's not something everybody just has to do. It's not just the way it is. It's not just the way it is. It's not just the way it is, America. It sucks. You are selling your children's future if you're in debt. Sorry to go off a little bit there, but I am sick of hearing people make excuses for being in debt for twenty to thirty thousand dollars to freaking Fannie Mae for school that they they don't even have. They have a degree they don't even have a job in, or being up to their ass in debt for Mastercard and Visa, and then they're worried about whether or not their kids going to be able to play the next sport. That's going to put them deeper in freaking debt. It is not okay. It screws up your life. It's as bad as being addicted to drugs. You hear that? If you are in heavy debt and you are unwilling to address the problem of that heavy debt, you might as well go out and get a cocaine habit. It destroys your life the same way. It's cancer. Eliminate it. And you don't have to eliminate it just like everything else. You don't have to do it today. You don't have to do it today. But do it. Write a plan. Get out of debt. Get out of debt. Pay it off. The big one, stop spending that which you do not have. It is not okay. It is not ever going to be okay. It is only going to get worse. This is your intervention. Hello, this is your conscience. Debt is stupid. Stop doing it. All right? Kill the credit cards. Put them under the lawnmower. Set them on fire. I don't care what. If you travel and you need one to rent a car, fine. Put it in a freeze it. Freeze it in water in a bag. You'll have time before your trip to defrost it. You know? you got to start thinking on this stuff. Planning for your future economically. Make sure that you actually know what you're invested in and why you're invested in it. And when you see a major catastrophe coming for the stock market, like I screamed was going to happen in 2008, do not listen to your financial liar. Do not think you're just invested for the long haul. Get your money the hell out of the way of the collision. I'm not talking about trading stocks on a daily basis. I'm talking about when you see all the indicators lighting up. Hey, we're headed into a recession. Just put your money in cash and wait. But I'm in a 401k. I can't get it out. Fine. Go to a cash value fund in your 401k. And if it doesn't have one, go to bond funds. I wish you had a cash value fund, but bonds are going to be far more insulated. You know, just standard U.S. government debt bonds. Do I like giving my money to the government in the form of a loan? No. But if it's stuck in a 401k, fine. I'll do it. Get out of the way of freight trains coming in the financial system. If you listen to this show, I'll tell you when I think one's coming. I think we're in a very precarious position with the stock market right now, but I'm not bailing out yet. 
Okay? But if I see it like I did before, I'll tell you like I did before. That's all I'll say. And then you need to start saving some money that's not in a freaking retirement account. This crap. This You financial liars make me sick. You make me sick. You have, I don't care what you say about emergency funds. None of you ever actually have your clients do it. You want as much money as you can piled into retirement accounts because you know it's captive and you make your fees on that shit. And you know you do it. And you know you do it. And don't write me and tell, you, tell me you don't do it unless you're willing to prove it to me, which, which you're not going to be willing to do. Um, you might need some money next month. And if all of your money that you've been saving is in your retirement account, you don't get to get to it. And it is, it is stupid to risk your first 90 days worth of income and savings on anything. You should save money starting now. Whatever money you can save outside of what you need to eliminate your consumer level debt. I don't believe in debt for anything other than houses and possibly cars. Depending. Depends on your income level, what you're driving, what you need to drive, things like that. But a house and a car, that's it. All the consumer level debt's got to go. Once you can save some money, put the money in a freaking regular, plain old, plain Jane safe bank account. Yes, they don't pay crap for interest. I'm aware of that. It doesn't matter. You, you, the 90 days of savings you have is for emergencies. Not so you can borrow it from yourself and pay it back with interest and get a tax consequence when you're not able to do so. Put that money, one off, a little harder to get to, yes, but if you need it tomorrow, you should be able to get it tomorrow. Period. Save a little, put a little bit of money in silver and gold as you move forward. But just start with having at least a couple months of your income in savings. Because remember that job loss? Okay, now I've got food stored. I've got a system in place for procedures and protocols to find a new job. Um, I can put food on the table for the next 60 days, and I don't have to go to the store to do that. Um, and I've got my financial shit together. And so, big deal. Big deal. And you don't have to go beg for a job. You go claim a job. Trust me, I've interviewed... Those of you that don't know me long term, I ran businesses for years. I quit to do this full time. And I've interviewed hundreds of people. And the person I've always given the best offers to and the best starting salaries to are the people that could sit in front of me and say, you need me more than I need you. I didn't care if, I, you know, saying it directly is a little bit arrogant. I might actually value that though. But it, I don't mean saying it directly. I've, very few people ever were that blunt with anything with me. But when I could feel that in them, when I could feel that this person was like, I'd really love to work for you, but I have other opportunities uh, that I'm exploring right now. And um, I, I'm here more to learn if this is a good fit for me and if there's a good opportunity for me here than to convince you that you want to hire me because, of, of course, you want to hire me. Of course, you want to hire me. And I'll tell you why you want to hire me. You want to hire me because whatever your biggest competitor is, you do not want me working for them. And you can't have that attitude when you're thinking, tomorrow morning, if I don't have a job, I can't feed my family. But if you're like, we're good for months, you can have that attitude and you get better opportunities. So the financial management thing is not just about saving for retirement or saving for a, 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 a bad day or what have you. It's about living your life under your own control. Most Americans, the reason I get so angry, you hear me like snap there and get angry about the debt. I can't stomach seeing a free people put on its own chains and then say this is normal. It's not normal. 
let's just put one on my left arm and one on my right arm and some shackles on my ankles and to my waist and a big-ass freaking heavy ball with a dollar sign on it, dragging ass behind me, and I'm going to go through life dragging this shit and say it's normal. And some guy goes jogging by with no debt chains. And I go, oh, it must be nice. Stop being stupid. Claim your life. It's your life. If you want to live in chains, as much as I'm sounding animate about this, you do what you want. You want to live in chains? Shine them up for all I care. But don't bitch about it when, when, when somebody like me sprints by you. Hey, how you doing? How's the chains? Bye. Woo! There he's gone. He went over the horizon. Holy shit. What's he up to? That's, that's, how, that's how normal people are living their lives. It is not normal. It is not normal for someone else to tell you how to live your life. It's not responsible either. I'm responsible because I have a good job and I pay my bills. So you do what other people say and you're in debt to other people and you fulfill your obligations to those other people that control your life. That's not responsibility. You've been lied to, America. You've been lied to. This is modern survivalism. Take control of your life. You have to do it with money and debt. The most important thing is a survival mindset. And that's in all things in your life. You have to say, this is my life, and I care about it more than anybody else in the world. Because it's the truth. And if you can't say that, you're not ready to step up and control your life yet. You still want somebody to do it for you. You're not willing to admit that. Let me tell you something. Let me say this again. There is no one that cares about your life more than you. And, well, my wife and my children. Okay, there's no more. There's no one that cares about your life more than your immediate family if you have a great family relationship. But they don't actually influence your life the way that you do. But I'm gonna, what I'm trying to point out to you is the, the, the police officer responding to the burglary call doesn't care about your family as much as he cares about his family. Not because he's a bad person, because he's a human being. The government official that has an evacuation plan and a rescue plan, if something goes wrong in your area, doesn't care about you as much as he cares about himself. You have to care about you. And damn it, you have to live like you care about yourself. See, my biggest problem with America today isn't that they're just dumbed-down idiots watching the Kardashians. That's a problem. It's why they're that. America doesn't give a shit about itself anymore. We, we think, oh, they're all selfish and wrapped up in themselves. No, they're not. If you cared about yourself, you'd take care of yourself. We wouldn't be one of the most obese countries in the world if we cared about ourselves. We care about instant gratification, but we don't care about ourselves. We wouldn't be leading the world in producing new type 2 diabetics if we gave a shit about ourselves at all. We wouldn't be watching stupid people on television be stupid just so we could feel a little bit better about ourselves because, boy, they're dumber than me, even though they have money somehow, if we gave a shit about ourselves. We wouldn't be trusting a public education system that is creating students that can't think for themselves if we cared about ourselves. We don't give a shit about ourselves, so we don't have a survival mindset. We have an existence mindset. As long as I'm okay, I'm fine. That's not good enough anymore. It's not good enough anymore. It's not good enough for the people that care about you. It's not good enough for the people you love. It's not good enough. Say it one more time so you get it through your thick, freaking skull, America. It's not good enough. It's not. 
It's not okay to let other people control your life. It's not okay to put faith in other people to take care of those you love more than they ever will. It's not okay. It's not adult. It's not responsible. It's not American. It's not human. We're living in an inhuman world where people don't take the fundamental basic responsibilities for their own existence and the existence of their children seriously anymore because they've been led to believe someone else will do it. Someone else will not do it. If that was the case, there wouldn't be people standing on rooftops waving for helicopters to come save their ass and not showing up for multiple days afterward because no one can take care of you the way that you can because no one cares the way that you do. And no one will ever take care of your children better than you will. So why do you think anybody will take care of you better than you will? Why do you trust a system that has constantly failed? Because sometimes it succeeds? Well, that's dumb. Then just go home. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna hear this much of what I have to say today and go, I'm just gonna go back to living completely asleep and not worry about this crap. Then this is what I want you to do. Go home, call your life insurance company, cancel that shit. You don't need that. Get your spare tire out of your freaking trunk. It's just taking space up, right? Cancel your car insurance. You know, don't worry about it. Well, I have to have it for the loan. Well, just keep what you need for the loan and, and just get rid of everything else. Get rid of fire insurance, flood insurance. Just screw it. Spend all your money. Go get 10 credit cards and max them out. Screw it. Fine. Doesn't matter. Because that's what you're saying. That's what you're saying. One more time. The way we're living is not okay. Letting other people control your life and steal from you is not okay. Steal your future. Steal your children's future. Put you through stress. Put you in an early grave. Feed you garbage. None of it's okay. I've talked about the basics today, but I've also gone advanced here. You take control. Where do you go from here? What do you do next? Just decide. Decide that what I've told you today is true. At least the parts of it that you feel are true. Decide it's not good enough. Living the way other people tell you is not good enough. Being controlled by other people, not good enough. Your children being educated by people who are frankly not, they are not qualified to be educating your children, not good enough. Trusting their education to those people without being involved yourself, not good enough anymore. You have to teach your children way more than they ever will. Not just math and science and history. You have to teach your children to be good young men and women, to stand up for things. What matters? When I was a boy, if we went to a store, and I went through a door, and there was a woman behind me, and I didn't hold the door, I would have quickly felt the swift cuff of my father's right hand against my right ear. Boy, what is wrong with you? Hold the damn door. Fathers, if you are not teaching your children that, you are failing as a father. That one thing alone, you are failing. And not just for ladies. By the way, anybody. It's called manners. How about not standing in the way of shit in a place that people are walking through? Standing in the middle of an aisle like, like, like an idiot. How about teaching your kids some manners? It's not good enough not to. It's not good enough to go, they'll learn it from Barney on the TV and from kindergarten. And everybody will be nice. It's not working that way. Why do you think we have so many bullies in our kids? Why do you think we have children killing themselves? And killing each other? And for everyone that kills themselves and kills other kids, and you hear about it on the news, and now we need a new gun control law, do you know how many are just suffering and not dying? They're cutting themselves or being miserable or entering up in prison? Because no one's saying you matter. And you can't be telling your child they matter if you don't treat yourself like you matter. 
I didn't know the show was going to go here today. But I hope you're listening. I hope you're hearing this. I hope you're getting this. And if somebody sent this to you and you think this is some crazy guy talking to you, I could be, there could be a case made that I'm a little crazy. But you go thank that person. Because this is your wake-up call. This is your wake-up call. But will you take it? Will you pick up the phone and will you answer it? Will you decide now? This isn't just about being prepared for a storm. It's about being prepared to live this life to the greatest potential that you can live it to. And to do so in a way that when bad things come along, you can get back to it as quickly as possible. And you can protect and defend and provide for the people that you love. That's called being an adult. It used to be called being virtuous in this country. I don't know where the hell it's gone, but I am busting my ass to put it right back where it belongs in the heart of every single adult individual in this nation today because it is the only future this country has. You are not going to fix it by electing the next ass clown to take over Washington with a different initial after his name. That is not going to fix it. We're going to have to fix it. We're going to have to do it. It's going to start with individual liberty, individual responsibility, and an understanding that what you currently have is not enough. It's not good enough. It's not right. And no one's going to care about you more than yourself. If you are the person that would say that you would lay down your life and die for a parent, a child, a spouse, I will ask you this final question. Will you live for them? Will you live for them? It's easy to die for someone because your job is over. But who's there to take care of them then? No one. It's much harder to live the best life you can for someone to be a shining example. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.